Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. So we have arrived at another turning point in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The sermon began with the massively significant uh, Beatitudes, which established the culture of the kingdom that has come in Christ. Then he moved into a discussion on the law, which showed us how his kingdom was to interpret and apply God's law. Now the sermon, uh, from here on out, will become a topical message. Essentially, Jesus is going to hit on uh, the important issues, not, not just for his day, but topics that transcend the times of every day, including ours, and show us how his kingdom, how his kingdom interprets and applies these important issues, important issues to our lives. And the first topic he chooses is the one that everybody and every society can obviously relate to, our money. No matter the form of currency, it is money that always tends to dominate cultures and people. What does the kingdom of God have to say to our money? A lot. Jesus talks about money more than any el- anything else, practically speaking, in the Gospels. But when he gives us his kingdom perspective here, he frames it with the language of treasure. Not necessarily money itself being the issue, but the proclivity of the human heart to treasure the things of this world which money can provide. Several years ago, um, some of you may remember this, a a premature snowstorm uh, came through and ruined Halloween for our city. And so we made a last-minute decision to invite uh, kids from our congregation and, and neighborhood to come to the church come inside, and they went through the building and uh, knocked door to door. Members, some of you were part of this, members were inside the classrooms and handed out candy to the kids. And then when they were done, all the kids and parents gathered uh, together in the fellowship hall uh, to just hang out and have fun and eat candy. Well, I'll never forget um, my son Owen sitting there um, in the fellowship hall looking at his bucket of candy. This is kind of the first Halloween that the glory that is Halloween had landed on him. And he's trying to kind of take in uh, what is in his possession at the time. And he takes a pile of candy into his arms. And I, I don't know where he uh, got this from. He had, uh, he had not seen Lord of the Rings. But in a moment that I think proves Tolkien's brilliance at capturing what is inside all of us, uh, my son went golem on me. He buries his head in the candy. He starts to kiss it. And he looks up and he says, my precious And it was cute and, and a little disturbing. <laughs> I was especially at uh, 
at my church with my congregants looking on. I was like, I promise he likes Jesus too. But our children always give us an unfiltered window into the human heart. The reason why he kisses and calls his candy precious is because that's what fallen sinners do. It may not be candy, but the very same thing, only with different idols, is happening in the hearts of everyone in this room as we speak. The things of this world become precious to us. Or as Jesus calls them in our passage, they become our treasures. Jesus is going to ask us to do two things in this passage. First, choose our treasure and then critique our treasure. Critique that point, that choice. And I'm going to approach the passage a little different this morning. I'm going to work backwards uh, through it. Far be it for me to question the Lord in heaven and earth, how he structured his sermon. But for this sermon, I think the meaning of the passage is going to land on us better if we first deal with that closing admonition, that closing choice that he has before us, and then evaluate that choice according to what he says before. So let's start at the end when Jesus makes us, forces us to choose our treasure. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So you cannot get more straightforward than that, right? God or money, which will it be? And what I want us to appreciate here is the significance of Jesus singling out money as this rival to our God. You can have God as your master, or money as your master. Nowhere else in Scripture is a choice so stark. There is, uh, there is competition between idols and God all over Scripture. But money is the only explicit idol singled out in such a prominent way. What is it about money that makes it such a unique rival to God? Well, the answer is found in Paul's words where he also singles out money in a unique way. When he says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So he views money as this thing that leads to a lot of other evils. What's unique about money is that it can provide for you almost anything this world has to offer. Power, fame, luxury, safety, security, pleasure. Whatever it is for you, money can give it to you. And in this way, money is much more than the currency of our world. It is the currency of our idolatry. Therefore, it remains preeminent in its tempting power. Nothing is more alluring than money. Not as an end in itself, but as a means to provide the worldly idols that have captured our hearts. And so Jesus singles it out for this very reason. And we who inhabit the most affluent and prosperous society in the history of the planet, we must really examine ourselves before this somber choice that Jesus has before us. God or money, choose this day whom you will serve. Because you cannot serve both. And that examination is for the rich and the poor alike, by the way. He doesn't say you can't have God and have money. He says you can't serve God and serve money. That distinction is very important because you don't need to have money to serve the God of money. Now, that being said, let me do a caveat here that I think is important. I do think 
the wealthy among us need to approach this passage with an extra measure of humble examination. It's not that you can't have a lot of money. In the same passage where Paul says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, he says this to those who do have a lot of money. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor put their hope in their wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. So he doesn't condemn them for being rich. He commands them to not put their hope in their riches, but rather God. The same idea in our passage. But that being said, Scripture is also very clear on this. It is very hard to have a lot of money and not love that money. Very hard. It is hard to be wealthy and not serve that wealth. And so I just would say with fear and trembling to the wealthy among us, you have to ask this, perhaps more than most of us, you have to ask, am I serving God or my wealth? Because according to Jesus, it is one or the other. By definition, you can't have two masters. The definition of a master is the master owns you. Only one can. What does it look like to be rich yet still serve God as your master? I'll get to that at the end of the sermon. I'll help you conceptualize. But for now, all I'm saying is please, for the the sake of your souls, don't run from this challenge. Don't minimize it. Don't explain it away. Lean into it. It really is as serious as God is making it out to be. You cannot serve God and money. But the point I was making is that it isn't just for the wealthy. You could be dead broke and living your life in service to money, striving after it with a singular ambition every day of your life. And on a heart level, how is that any different than the greedy of this world who have obtained what you long to have? There is no difference. You too are in service to money. It's an issue of the heart which is what Jesus is pointing out with that odd illustration in verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. What is is that all about? He's using the eye as a metaphor for our hearts. Your eye controls your body. Or as he put it, puts it, they are the lamp of your body. So, so in their time walking in the darkness, they used a lamp to guide their path. And Jesus is saying that what, what the eye does at, at all times to your body, it gives it this direction. Where your body goes is determined by what your eyes see. Well, in the same way that our eyes control the direction of our bodies, our hearts control the directions of our life. If the gaze of your heart is fixated on money, money will control your life. If the gaze of your heart of your heart is fixated on God, God will control your life. And that heart level decision is a risky decision. We must be incredibly careful in our choice between God and money. So with the remaining time I have here, I want to turn our attention to that examination where the passage forces us not just to choose our treasure, but then to critique that choice. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus begins this passage with a language of treasure, and he ends it with a language of money, as we have already seen. And the reason why this is so is because, as I already said, it's not about money. That's not the issue per se. It's what money offers us. Money is the means to obtain our treasure in this world. So the real call of the question, the real, the real call of the passage is to examine our treasure, rich or poor. What do you treasure? And the point Jesus is saying here is you need to be very careful with how you answer that question. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Here's the meaning behind that imagery. If you choose to treasure the idols of this world, you have made an incredibly dangerous choice. You have chosen to treasure that which by definition you are going to lose. It's not a question of whether your treasure will be taken from you. It's a question of when. It may be a slow process of decay. Moth and rust destroy You can apply that decaying principle to any worldly idol of your choosing. Yes, of course, uh, those possessions that actually do decay, go out of style. If if accumulating stuff is your thing, then eventually that stuff will decay or go out of style. When we moved into our home, it looked like something out of the 80s catalog. And slowly, you know, budgeting well with what we could do, room by room, we have updated. But one day, someone is going to move into our home and say, Oh, this is so 2020. It never ends. And someday our home will fully decay and be buried in the ruins of history along with all of our possessions. All our stuff will go the way of moth and rust eventually. But this decaying principle is not just for things that physically decay. If you treasure fame, money can get you that. It really can. But that fame is fleeting. If you treasure beauty, money can prolong that. But beauty is fleeting. If you treasure power, money can give you that. But power is fleeting. Whatever money provides, moth and rust will destroy. Or it could just be taken from you in a moment. Thieves break in and steal. Money can provide the fame and power you treasure, but you are one scandalous choice away from losing it in a moment. Money can provide the comfort and pleasure you treasure, but you are one tragic circumstance away from losing it in a moment. Our entire economy could be decimated by something unforeseen, and we could all lose money that we trust to provide our treasures. Do not suppose that American prosperity is impervious. History has taught us that it is only a matter of time. But even if you somehow evade the stealing of your treasure. The ultimate thief is coming for every single one of us. Eventually, the grave is going to rob you of every single earthly treasure. And Jesus is saying, wake up, friends. Wake up. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Do not expose your heart to the perilous plight of earthly treasures. With a hundred percent certainty. Jesus is saying you're going to regret that choice. He's not neutral here. He's pleading. 
He's commanding. He says, do not do this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. He loves you enough to warn you. He's pleading with you, don't do this. Don't treasure the fleeting idols of this earth and thus serve the money that provides them. But here we face a dilemma. At least I do. I think most of you can relate. How can we possibly change? How can we stop treasuring these idols of the world and serving the money that provides these idols? Especially immersed in a society where that's all everyone is doing. And discipled by liturgies of this society that encourages you to do it every day. It feels so helpless. Well, the answer to changing our internal hearts is through external habits. Verse 20. So he says, don't do this. Don't store up treasures. But he doesn't leave you there. He gives you the contrast. But instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So instead of laying up treasures on earth that will be destroyed and taken from you, instead lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust and thieves cannot touch them. Now in one sense, that comparison is a motivating change in itself. A good old-fashioned cost analysis here, right? Invest in that which is sure to reap eternal rewards rather than that which is sure to go bankrupt. But even that I don't think is enough to change our proclivity to treasure the idols of this world. No, the real power is found in actually obeying his command. It's the storing up of treasures in heaven that actually changes us. He is saying our money can serve treasures on earth, but money is morally neutral. It can also serve treasures in heaven. You can use it for selfish purposes, but you are allowed to use it for kingdom purposes. You are allowed to give it away and fuel kingdom work and reap heavenly returns. And here's the point that I'm trying to make. This has never proven untrue. When we do that, when we sacrificially give toward the mission of God's kingdom, that external practice does something internally within. It changes what we treasure, and we get addicted to a new treasure. When our money serves our idols, it only inflames that idolatry, does it not? Surely you've noticed this. The more we buy, the more we want. The more we spend on pleasure, the more pleasure we seek. Come home from a lavish vacation. That was amazing. But the first thing I want to do is start planning the next one. The more money we amass in the name of security, the more we want to store away for further security. Some of you have portfolios that would make most of us say, yeah, I think that's probably enough. (laughs) But why isn't it enough for you? I need to make more. I need to make sure that me, my children, my grandchildren will be secure. How do we break free from this cycle of more with new cycles built upon kingdom giving? We get addicted to costly, reckless generosity. This, by the way, is how the wealthy, I told you I would talk to the wealthy among us. This is how you can have a lot of money and yet serve God, not money. 
You renounce your spending habits with habits of giving. And I'm telling you from personal experience with my wealthy friends who actually put this into practice, it works. They are so free from their wealth. They get addicted to giving rather than spending and saving more and more. The more they prosper, the more they want to give away. They discover this blessed freedom that storing up treasures in heaven is far more satisfying than fleeting treasures on the earth. But this is not just for the wealthy. I want to get really practical here, okay? As possible as I can be for us. If you want to change your heart, if you hear Jesus' ominous words that you cannot serve God and money, so you're going to have to choose, and it cuts you to the heart, but you feel helpless to change your heart, I'm going to give you the most practical plan to actually change your heart. It's three steps. And listen, the college students, young, young folks, I really wish I set these patterns early in my life. It's a lot harder to do this later than it is where you are. Just three things. To fall out of the love of the world and fall in love with the kingdom. First, set a budget that's far less than your income and stick to it. Second, tithe your income to the church. 10% minimum to TCPC. Everyone did that. We wouldn't have to send out letters. We're at the end of fiscal year. You got a letter. Here's what we need to make sure that we meet budget shortfalls this year. We wouldn't have to have those letters because we wouldn't need them if just we all tithe. All you would get is letters explaining how your tithe is funding the kingdom. Set a budget, tithe your income, and then third, give above and beyond your tithe to kingdom project that God lays on your heart. For most of us, that's not going to be much. It's a lot in the eyes of God but not much worldly speaking. But the wealthy of this world, God has granted you the blessed opportunity of getting crazy with your money. A giving above and beyond giving that doesn't make sense to the rest of the world, but makes sense to the kingdom of God. And I just don't think you should squander that opportunity that he has given you. Budget, tithe, and give above your tithe. You do those three things, it will radically change your heart. It will bless others. It will bless the kingdom. It will bless the church. It's going to change you. It will wean you off the treasures of this world and you will get addicted to the kingdom of God. And here's the best part. You may view that as a sacrifice. You may hear those words and say, if I actually did that, that is the scariest choice I could imagine. What you will discover is that it is no sacrifice at all. You will discover you are not giving, you are gaining you will discover that those earthly treasures are not treasures at all. Are the selfish happy? Are those who hoard their wealth happy? Are those who spend their wealth to feed their idolatry happy? They are not. They are the most miserable people I know. America is simultaneously the richest and most anxious nation on earth. How is that possible? The rest of the world looks at us and says, how are you Americans so miserable? And I'll tell you why that is. Earthly treasures are Trojan horses. Offered as a gift and our ruin lays inside. So that night, we did trick-or-treating at the church. All the kids and adults were hanging out together in the fellowship hall, having a blast. But not my own. I realized I hadn't seen him in a while. Went to find him. I found him huddled in the corner of the room with his precious entering into kidney failure. He'd probably consumed about half of his stash. He looked at me, chocolate drool all over his face, and said, Daddy, I don't feel so good. 
only an hour into his treasure, and he's made sick from it. Friends, that is the story of every single one of us who makes the tragic choice of treasuring the things of this earth. We get sick off of our treasures. Those treasures don't free us, they enslave us. They do not bless us, they destroy us. They do not love us, they hate us, they want our ruin. Money is a cruel, cruel master to serve. But compare that to the other master that is being offered to you this morning. Jesus calls us in this passage to store up treasures in heaven. Well, the fullness of heavenly treasures belonged to him. And what did our master do? One verse, then we're done. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, he, for your sake, became poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become eternally rich. Brothers and sisters, that is the master I want to serve. He is the treasure that I have chosen. And I pray you will join me in that choice. Let me pray. Lord, this is what we want. I pray if there are those in the room who don't want that, that they would see you as this lovely master who who doesn't hate them, loves them, uh, doesn't oppress them, sets them free. But for most of us here, Lord, this is what we want. Jesus, we love you. Oh, for grace to love you more. I pray that you would free us, wean us off our addiction to earthly treasures and set our hearts on heaven above. Lord, in a world that tells us that life is found in just more, 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 I pray we would renounce that lie and say life is found in giving, giving, giving. Lord, in this world filled with so much stuff that is so expensive This little piece of bread and this sip from this cup is the most priceless treasure in our world. Would you feed us with your gospel? Fill us with your love and release us, Lord, to go and do likewise. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.